This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. I take great pride in being a fangirl on the internet. To obsess over something with other nerds is the ultimate joy. My very first fangirl obsession was this R&B boy band called Immature. They were three 13-year-old boys in flowy clothes on a beach promising never to lie to me. All while one was wearing a very fashionable eye patch. The internet was still in its early form back then. I couldn't really share that love online yet. Later, when I fell in love with NSYNC, I'd have to wait 30 minutes for a GeoCities fan site to download. But from there, online fandom only grew in size and fervor. And fangirls, we shaped the internet itself. Caitlin Tiffany's new book is all about that history and influence. It's called Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It. Caitlin's a fangirl, too, of One Direction. You know, Harry, Liam, Niall, Lewis, and Zane. Caitlin and I talked about fan mobilization, how Tumblr transformed internet fan culture, and what the One Direction, or 1D fandom, says about the power of fangirls online. Here's our chat. I am curious, like, what what made you want to write a book about fandom? Like, why was this, like, the book for you? As I became a culture reporter at The Verge, started writing more and more about fandom and, you know, lots of other internet culture topics as well. But it was a really interesting time to be learning about the internet and about how to be a journalist because it was also the midpoint of Gamergate. So that was like a pretty rough and tumble education um, in just like how internet movements can go totally sideways. Instantly they dived into find where she lives, finds where where all these people live. Uh, What are we going to do about her? Can we hack her email? Like instantly. It's like you're just constantly surrounded by nothing but hate. Also how people who get involved in those movements justify them to themselves and how captivating the narratives around, around them can be and how important subcultures become to people's sense of identity and worldview and their sense of morality. After Gamergate, that kind of went pretty seamlessly into the, the rise of MAGA and the alt-right and incels and all of these different kind of like fringe politically disturbing subcultures, there was a real like urgency to understand and that were, you know, majority made up of young men who seemed to have kind of been like formed by the internet and to have like personalities and and politics and senses of humor and senses of truth and reality that were shaped by growing up online. So as a person who was spending a lot of time in fandom, it was kind of like, well, I also see on the other side of the internet, like these subcultures primarily made up of, of young women 
or, you know, other groups that we aren't seeing in the alt-right <laughs> necessarily yeah. who are, you know, making these huge seismic changes to internet culture and to the way that we respond to news events and the way we talk about the things we care about and the way we try to get attention for causes that we believe in. And, and that was going sort of under-examined while everybody was trying to figure out, like, uh-oh, how did the internet break all of the boys' brains? Um. <laughs> yeah. No, I find that so interesting because I want to talk about the Tumblr of it all because, like, I find that I was on Tumblr at maybe the right time in my early 20s where I was kind of not, like, indoctrinated, but I'd found, <laughs> I'd found my little niche corner of a fandom that kind of, you know taught me the world of the, the, the language of misogynoir and, you know, mm-hmm. leftist politics and the whole other side of, like, the, the, the polar opposite of, like, what broke these boys' brains was the side of Tumblr that kind of, like, built me up and, and, and taught me, the, like, the language to, like, defend the mistreated Black girls on TV shows. <laughs> like, totally. having that kind of language... And it really shaped how the internet operates today. And it doesn't get taken seriously enough for it, in my opinion. But you talk about this a little bit just now, but can you talk a bit more about Tumblr's influence on the growth of modern fandom? Yeah, it's really remarkable, I think, looking back like at how much of kind of the millennial political or cultural worldview like came from Tumblr, that's like where like Occupy Wall Street really took off um, in internet culture, and like a lot of conversations around representation and the term problematic. I feel like wasn't used outside of academic discourse until Tumblr. Oh, for sure, your fave is problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, like a lot of those things, and obviously, like Tumblr is known for kind of becoming a parody of itself, and like some of those conversations getting like going over the top and becoming like puritanical. But I think part of the reason that Tumblr became the fandom platform, which is kind of a coincidence of timing because some of the really popular fan fiction websites, including um, LiveJournal was a big home for fan fiction, had started banning certain types of, of fan fiction stories, like especially ones involving real people. So like pop stars, (laughs) um, So a lot of a lot of fans who had already been involved in fandom on the internet sort of migrated to Tumblr and made their new home there. At the time, like Tumblr was really unique in the tools that it provided to users and tools that were really useful for fans because they both wanted to have like writing tools, but also um, visual tools. And Tumblr is like where GIF sets were <laughs> were invented. Like that's a unique visual form of Tumblr. So I think Tumblr is kind of the perfect mix between public and private because if you have an interest, you can go there, you can find the community that's interested in the thing you're interested in, and you can like work your way into it over time. Um, but it's not the type of place that's like super easy to just like drive by, you know? Um, you have to like really invest and find yeah, your people. Totally. And there is, you know, a culture of anonymity or, you know, using pseudonyms or even if you went by your real full name, there's a culture of like, delete your blog, 
start over completely. Who cares? Like, try on a completely different fandom or a different subculture or a different aesthetic or a different identity. Um, so I think it felt a lot safer. Yeah. So the book has all these great examples of how different fandoms influence how the internet evolved. Uh, you have, like, like, there's a Grateful Dead fan group was one, mm-hmm. and, like, the very first kind of forums on the web, and young women contributed to thousands of boy band fan pages in the 90s. Like, I was very invested in certain GeoCity websites about NSYNC yeah. when I was 11. But this book is, like, heavily informed by your own One Direction fandom and how... 1D fans had like molded different parts of the internet to their own use. And so what was important about using the One Direction fandom as the focal point of your book? Well, so I was personally involved in the One Direction fandom. So it was both (laughs) that like I was naturally more interested in One Direction fans and like already knew like a lot of things that they had gotten up to that would that would be hopefully interesting to other people. But also like fandom is so specific and there's so much context around like the little divisions and each separate event in, in every single one that I think like it just wouldn't have worked for me to say, well, you know, K-pop fandom is the is the one everyone's talking, that's what everyone's talking about now. I'm, I'm going to write about that because I would have had to just like, completely just parachute in like the book is focused on on fans shaping internet culture but I think there's also sections in there that are more about what role like fandom plays in contemporary life in general and it was really important for me to touch on my personal experiences in order to make that sort of less abstract Mm -hmm. and less like speculative or academic Funnily enough, one of my friends mentioned that she had one of the bigger um, One Direction tumblers when she was a teenager. Oh my God, amazing. But then she deleted everything. Um, but I just wanted to read this to you because I was like, I'm reading this book. I was like, I'm reading this book. And it's all about like all these specific fandom moments. And she wrote, like, I wish I didn't delete all my blogs, LMAO. When I was fully in the 1D Tumblr scene, I would have willingly submitted myself to be studied by sociologists and neurologists alike. (laughs) Because being given an inkling of social power in that hive mind environment running on a steady engine of teenage girl hormones, it was absolutely an insane time. Oh, my God. Wait, that's incredible. I would love to have spoken to her because that is so true, like people would kind of establish their own little, like, fiefdoms in Tumblr fandom. Yeah. Coming up, why fandom is always a little more complicated than you might think. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. 
training, ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I was so fascinated by the discussion of the Black Harrys Mm -hmm. and how now as a fan, we want more than just music from our pop stars, but we also want representation. And they were selected to represent them. And now the fans want to recoup on their investment. Yeah. Yeah, there was, um, so Alison Gross, who's a fandom researcher who wrote her dissertation about Harry Styles, wrote like a really amazing paper back in 2017 or 2018 about Black Harry Styles fans who, um, you know, really wanted him to participate in Black Lives Matter and like, express his support of it on stage, which they felt, you know, was particularly a reasonable request because he was so outspoken about supporting the LGBTQ community and about supporting women and sort of like making these pronouncements at the beginning of his concerts about it being an inclusive space and like wanting everybody to really feel like themselves at his shows. Black Harry's, that's the kind of title that the group has taken on. Um, The way that Alison Gross presented it in her paper, it was kind of like a, almost like a populist political movement. Like, um, you know, fans feel like we found this person, we selected this person, we believe in him, we, like, believe that he basically does represent us. We are just trying to make sure that he is actively representing us. And, like, as his fans, as the people who have, like, um, created basically the meaning of his career and his art, like, we should also be creating his political meaning. And, you know, Harry Styles did eventually, you know, start publicly talking about Black Lives Matter and and eventually went to some marches in the summer of 2020. But I think it is still kind of a fraught conversation within the fandom because, you know, there are white fans who are very defensive about, well, he's a pop star, not a politician. And Black fans who are saying, like, no, like, we're part of this fandom. This is, this is part of, basically part of, of what he has implicitly promised by explaining that the purpose of his art and his persona is to make his fans feel included. So this is this is part of that. A fangirl can be viewed as this monolith, especially with, with One Direction as like these cishet teenage white girls. And you are very intentional about including, you know, queer fans, Black fans, cishet male fans. Love that. Um, and even women in their 40s. And why like, why was it so important to showcase these, quote unquote, perceived outliers? Yeah, I thought, um, so I spoke to you for the book, um, Jessica Pruitt, who is a researcher who wrote, um, has written a couple of papers actually about um, lesbians in One Direction fandom specifically. Mm-hmm. And I felt like she explained it so well because... First of all, obviously, like, I think it's important to just tell the truth of the story. And it's not just, it's like all these different people are in fandom. So like, as a journalist, it's just my kind of like literal responsibility (laughs) to reflect that. But she also explained it as kind of like, if, if fandom isn't just about being like a screaming hormonal teenage girl who wants to like make out with (laughs) the boys in the band, like if there are all of these different groups that like don't conform to that in the fandom, then that is like useful to know because that helps you understand that like all fandom is more complicated than just, 
oh, I like Harry's so cute. I love him. I want to kiss him or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, showing the range of, of life experiences that can be kind of refracted through fandom and can find structure through fandom is, is helpful in understanding even like for me, obviously I was like a little bit more of like the, the trope of a One Direction fan, even though I was probably like slightly older than most people would expect, but I was a teen. I was 19. Um, I like lived in a suburb. I like thought the boys were cute and that was certainly part of it. But like, I think personally, I think that my story with fandom is much more complicated than just thinking Harry Styles was cute. And I think that's true for everyone. And that was like what was so fun about talking to fans is that like you literally ask them one question and they have so many, (laughs) so many interesting things to say that are really unique more than just like, oh my God, he's so cute. Like nobody, I feel like basically nobody even said that. (laughs) Or if they did, it's like, it's like, it's reflected. It's, it's like as an aside, like, yeah. And they were cute, you know? Uh, (laughs) Okay, this is something in my whole, like, fangirl life. It's this thing that I've um, been trying to reconcile, and it's still hard for me, that there's this looming contradiction with being a fangirl, where Mm. it's empowering for the fangirl to, you know, love this person or thing. But because there's it's it's a very hive-minded, like, quote-unquote, us-versus-them enterprise... Yeah. The enemy tends to be other girls. There's an example that you put in the the book that kind of blew my mind. I knew nothing about it was Baby Gate. Yeah. And I had like, if you don't mind explaining like what that moment was about, because I think that really encapsulates this kind of blinding allegiance almost to a fault. Yeah, totally. A pretty famous like fandom conspiracy theory in that came out of One Direction in the 2010s was at Larry Stylinson, which started out as sort of a as a ship. Like you know, wouldn't it be great if these guys were in love? Some people thought they really were in love, and it wasn't a ridiculous theory because they were kind of always like falling all over each other. They were very like rambunctious, <laughs> affectionate boys, <laughs> and in that in that way, it was totally harmless. But um, you know, as the years went on as like Harry Styles had various girlfriends who were in the public eye as, you know, as it became clear, like they were kind of drifting apart and sort of trying to make an effort to say, no, we're not in love. Some fans really doubled down on this story that they were being forcibly closeted by management. So the kind of like logical assumptions that came out of insisting on that belief got a little bit dark because it was like any now any woman who's seen with Harry Styles is like a paid plant and a gold digger and like all of these terrible misogynistic tropes um and then you know Louis Tomlinson later he had a, a fling with this makeup artist from Los Angeles and she got pregnant pretty much immediately it was like she staged this uh, let me chart out her menstrual cycle and prove that she's lying. Wait, uh, what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Then it was like the baby's a doll. And then later, once it became clear that the baby was not a doll because it could walk and talk, it was, you know, it's a paid actor or it's someone else's baby. Like it's not, it's it's still not Louis's baby. And And there's always kind of this 
like moral superiority that people could cling to because if you argued with them, if you said what you're doing is dangerous and wrong, it would be, it's homophobic to to say that. And then sort of like counterintuitively, some of the arguments in favor of Babygate were quite homophobic in themselves because it would become like, oh, well, here's proof that Louis is gay. Look at the way he's holding his his wrist or something, you know? Oh. Um, <laughs> but something I was surprised about when I was researching Babygate was like when I was like actually talking to people who were involved, I realized that it was actually extremely painful for people in the fandom because friendships were ended over this. Hmm. It like really divided the fandom in half. And then the denial of reality was sort of kind of a poison and people could take any denial and flip it to be the opposite of what it was. Everything was in code. Everything was symbolism. Everything fit into the narrative even if it seemed not to, which is, I think, pretty familiar if you've looked at any (laughs) internet conspiracy theories. Oh, for sure. Like, even right now, this, you know, this kind of formula of conspiracy, just, like, fans see, like, a rich, famous man, and they villainize uh, their female partner or, or the idea of, like, what even is truth? Yeah. Like, has that percolated out of fandom into wider online life? Yeah, I think it's, like, a characteristic, uh, uh, unfortunately, of, of, like, really intense online community is that there comes to be, like, these sort of incentive structures where whoever can notice something that no one else has noticed, whether it's, like, a secret symbol or a secret gesture that you can slow down and zoom in on. Obviously, we saw this recently with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Like, there becomes an incentive to be the person who finds these things. And it is, like, this kind of big participatory puzzle. And I think that can be really exciting for people. And then the way that I've seen specifically, like, fandom conspiracy thinking reach out into broader internet discourse is this sort of, like, wedding the theory to like an ostensibly progressive social cause. So with Babygate, it was, we're fighting homophobia because we're we're going to like free these boys from their secret life in this like horrible uh, prison that they've been forced into. Mm-hmm. And then with, um, we saw recently with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp story, this is like a misogynistic smear campaign that's being framed as, no, we're actually, like, we are supporting Me Too by drawing attention to male victims of abuse or by tearing apart the story of this woman who is lying because she's actually the one who's damaging the credibility of real victims or something. That, like, moral conviction that excuses all kinds of misogynistic vitriol or invasion of privacy, that I think was really born from Tumblr conspiracy thinking. Yes. Up next, how fandom can both be empowering and exploitative. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. 
We've done your homework. I think from the inside and from from the outside, like I feel like fangirls are equal parts ridiculed and exploited for their labor. Uh Uh-huh. And so I think that there's a way that I think a lot of young fans kind of know know that now, but I don't know if they knew that then. Like, how did the internet during the One Direction era kind of highlight the ways in which that, you know, fangirls were being kind of exploited, but also ridiculed? Yeah. I think because, like, One Direction was, I think they've been called, like, the internet's first boy band. They found global success um, at the same time that young people were joining social media platforms like Twitter um, and Instagram for the first time. So I think it was sort of a dual learning experience for fans who are already kind of, like, they're prompted by the amount of time that they're spending on this to sort of think about why they're doing that. And I think a lot of them do think about that deeply. And so you're, you've got these sort of like twin venues of exploitation. You're like, I understand that I am making money for Twitter by sitting here all day long tweeting about Harry Styles. And I also understand that I'm making money for the entertainment industry by sitting here, you know, waiting to be led into Ticketmaster so that I can spend $600 on concert tickets or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think like, obviously everybody is, everybody who uses the internet or like, <laughs> purchases things uh, (laughs) is participating in the same systems, but maybe like it's a little bit less in their face and you don't have to think about it quite as much. Mm -hmm. So I think like fans are pretty aware of those things and they have kind of a give and take or like love and hate relationship with both industries. Like fans kind of openly resent and distrust the entertainment industry because one, they know they're being exploited but two they think that they understand the band and its meaning better than the people who are in charge of the tours and the music videos and the whatever else which is why fan one direction fans tried to buy one direction out of their recording contract wait they tried to buy <laughs> 1d out of their their contract yeah a couple of times there was like campaigns that were basically like well there are millions of us so if we each gave five dollars we would have 80 million dollars <laughs> we could just uh you know, set one direction free. I can see the vision. Yeah. I, yeah, I respect the vision too. Um, and then similarly with social media, like fans have this like love hate relationship with platforms too, because they like understand more about them. They like have way more direct conflict with the rules than, than the regular Twitter user. Like you see Mm -hmm. fan accounts get suspended and banned all the time for various reasons. Like probably often because they're like harassing people or telling them to, like off themselves, but also because they will be like tweeting things they don't own the copyright to, or like they're they're always kind of bending the rules and like facing consequences, which is why the phrase like one direction ruined my life is like a popular fan joke. Like they're kind of referring to this like ridiculous situation they've been placed in. Why are we as fangirls so desperate to have our lives ruined? <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I guess there's, like, probably, like, sort of, like, a, a highfalutin, like, religious metaphor about the, like, <laughs> thrills of devotion and, like, surrender that I could get into. But I also think, like, part of the reason that people started calling themselves, like, One Direction trash or saying One Direction ruined my life or writing, like, really kind of creepy fanfic in which Harry Styles is, like, murdering you or whatever, I think part <laughs> of that is, like... <laughs> Um, like fans are aware, as we were talking about before, that fandom has been 
thoroughly commodified. And I think part of it is like kind of wiggling away from that and be like, and being like, no, like I'm, if if you're going to make my fandom into this thing, you can sell back to me. Like, how about I do something freaking weird? Like, let me see you sell back to me my fan fiction about Liam Payne cutting my collarbone out of my body. Like, good luck with that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And then similarly with calling yourself trash or saying One Direction ruined my life. Like, that's just a way of kind of like, I guess, reclaiming the, like, edginess or at least the like subversion of fandom and being like yeah we're freaks like we're doing something weird Uh, (laughs) and like that's part of why it's fun Caitlin thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me yeah of course thank you so much for for reading it this was really a good time thanks again to Caitlin Tiffany her book everything I need I get from you is out now All right, this episode was produced by Liam McBain and edited by Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. We had engineering help from Stu Rushfield. Of course, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday. For that, we want to hear the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself and email the file to us at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. All right, until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm B.A. Parker. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling, trying to find humanity, or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline... We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.